ask before we start, is there anybody left in the room who hasn't tried my hat on and would like to? <laughs> Just pass it around. Let's get it out of the way. <clears throat> I also have a, a confession to make. Um, on uh, Thursday of, uh, of this week, or last week, I, uh, I went out to the opticians and I bought some new spectacles without Belinda. <laughs> so if I return um, next week looking a little beaten up, okay... I want to assure you it's nothing to do with the spectacles. <laughs> the army of the Lord. Ooh. Normally what Nigel does is it gives us a, uh, a passage of scripture and a subject and uh, we, we base... Um, what we, uh, you know, what God has given us around the very particular passage. O- on this occasion, all He's done is give me a title. Now, the implications of this for you is that the uh, the scriptures are going to come at you like bullets. Okay. Um, so, if I see anybody, you know, looking it up uh, on their machine, I'm going to assume, in fact, that they're texting because it will all be up on the overhead. Whether it's up in the right order remains to be seen, but it will be, it will be up on the overhead. So our current series has covered I Will Build My Church, The Bride of Christ, and The Body of Christ. And this morning, we're going to consider the army of God. I think there's, there's the potential to be a bit hesitant when we talk about the church uh, in terms of, of an army. There's the potential to be a bit uncomfortable because, uh, well, we, we don't approve of violence and it all sounds a bit, a bit martial, a bit militaristic. Uh, it doesn't sit well with our world view. And when we consider the subject of the army of the Lord, our view can be informed by our perspective of the army. It's okay, the hat's nearing the end. right the hat has arrived actually no let's just stop there Phil put the hat on brilliant okay so that's done now can I get back to the sermon okay we're in a land that hasn't fought uh, a land war against an adversary since 1066 okay I'm not including the Scottish in that Uh, World War II was over 60 years ago, and it's outside the personal experience of most of us. Uh, No, I did say most. (laughs) And in both world wars, all the battles the British Army fought were fought on someone else's ground. They were not fought here. And it's true even now that uh, any military conflict that presently involves the British Army, it takes place uh, somewhere else. And there was a a member of the Welsh Fusiliers uh, killed in Afghanistan yesterday. 
It's also worthy of comment that the British army is made up of volunteers. Uh, Conscription into the army ended over 50 years ago, 1960, and it's also outside the experience of most of us here. As a matter of interest, has anyone in the room done national service? Two. Okay. Thank you for that. (laughs) So as a result of all this, we have to be careful that we don't carry this perspective when we talk about the army of the Lord. You see, we could think when we talk about the army of the Lord that this army too fights its battles somewhere else. That the fighting was undertaken much more in the past than in the present. And that in any case, it's got nothing to do with me. Uh, And yet we read in Philippians, um, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as his brother, his co-worker and his fellow soldier. He further appeals to Timothy to join him in suffering like a good soldier. Pointing out immediately thereafter that no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but instead tries to please his commanding officer. And we have the accounts from Exodus of the children of Israel crossing into Jordan and taking by force the land God had promised them. This is really an incredibly clear picture of the church, both a people and an army. Not one or the other, but both. Fighting together on a mission to take the land. Spurgeon wrote this. The Church of Christ is continually represented under the figure of an army, yet its captain is the Prince of Peace. Its object is the establishment of peace, and its soldiers are men of a peaceful disposition. The spirit of war is at the extremely opposite point to the spirit of the gospel. Yet nevertheless, the church on earth has, until the second advent must be, the church militant, the church armed, the church warring, the church conquering. So the army of the Lord, the army of God, well, it's, it's the church. And in the context of what I'm sharing this morning, it's this church. And uh, we're the church. So, folks, we're a church on a mission. Now, your response could be, I didn't sign up for this. Okay. Um, I think I need to remind you of one very important theological point, um, which is that you did. Uh, Folks, we are volunteers in the army of God. And we signed on when we gave our lives to Jesus. So who are our adversaries? Against whom does this army fight? Well, um, Nigel uh, says that whenever I preach, I use lists. So I'm going to suggest that there are three. Firstly, the devil. Um, One of the guys on an alpha course I was leading one time, someone who wasn't a Christian, Uh, He said something along these lines. It was very striking. It stayed with me. He said, I've no problem believing there is a devil because if there is a God, there must be a devil. I look around and I see the good things that indicate to me that there must be a God spoiled 
and ruined. And responsibility for it must rest with somebody. And he was right. The devil most certainly exists. And we must both beware of him and be aware of him and of the supernatural. Uh, But some background. So Revelation 12 from verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So we know that he went up directly against Michael and his angels and he lost. And having lost the war against the father, he went to war against the father's created. He couldn't take out the father, so he's gone for the children. And he began his campaign, I'm sure you all know, in the Garden of Eden. And his weapon of choice on that occasion was doubt. And the thing that he introduced there was rebellion. Now if we turn to Hebrews 2 from verse 14, we read this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, which is to say Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. And if you want to cross that, Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has already broken the power the devil has over us. Not only that, but if we go back to Paul's vision in Revelation 20.10, we get to know the ultimate outcome for the devil at the return of Jesus. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think if you put that into vernacular, the word is toast. Folks, the devil's already lost. Any supernatural power he has over the children of God is an illusion that he tries to protect, project in order to dupe us. He is as powerful as we will let him be. He's at his core a liar. And to believe in anything other than his defeat is to believe a lie. The devil is not too strong for us. But there's no doubt that we will have to contend against him until the second coming of Jesus, what Spurgeon called the second advent. For example, in 1 Peter 5.8 we're told, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But we also read in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
We presently live in a tension between a victorious God and a devil that yet fights on. Um, I'm not entirely sure how theologically correct this is, but I kind of see the devil as one of these um, Japanese um, troops in the Second World War who's been, um, he's unaware that, that Japan has lost the war, and as a result, he's still fighting on. Okay. But they've lost. They've absolutely lost. When Christ returns, that tension, the one between a victorious God and a devil that fights on, well, that tension will cease. Now, until then, an army submitted to God, determined to fight, well, it fills the devil with such fear that when faced with it, he can't even manage an orderly retreat. He has to leg it. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay? He will not leave with decorum. He will run. He's already been made a public spectacle of, and he doesn't want it to happen again. So that's the devil. Enough of him. Secondly, what the Bible refers to as the world. Now, folks, it must be plain to us that our enemy has home ground advantage. Okay, there is a plain statement in 1 John 5.19. It says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now we speak of the fall as that terrible moment when the sin of man ripped a divide between mankind and God, which no man could then cross unaided. And that's absolutely true. But this was also when man's world was brought under the control of the devil. And, uh, you know, intuitively, we see the effects of this in the world all the time. Occasionally, we see, uh, we see glimpses, don't we, of just naked wickedness, uh, crimes between people or against children. Uh, sometimes it's a failure of morality or, or a lack of integrity, perhaps, in a bank or a newspaper, a government, an individual. Maybe it's some kind of hypocrisy that we see in, in, in public or private life. Now, sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. But folks, our culture and society is under the influence of the devil because the world is in the control of the devil. So, should we avoid secular work, uh, secular music, art, culture, the theatre, other pastimes? Does this mean we should uh, lock ourselves away from all of these potentially harmful influences? Uh, no, no, of course not, not at all. Um, remember, we're the winners. David Watson wrote this, he said... Uh, the gospel does not throw out culture. On the contrary, it comes into our culture. It settles there. It brings its impact on our total life within that culture. God does not want us to be aliens to our culture, but only aliens to sin. We read these words of Jesus to his disciples in John fifteen nineteen. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. Uh, as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world 
hates you. What does that mean? It means that when we are pursuing uh, kingdom objectives, um, well, the world is not necessarily going to thank us for it. They are going to tell us uh, we are wrong. They're going to tell us that uh, we could offend. They're going to tell us that we are being exclusive. They're going to tell us that we don't know what we're talking about. They're going to tell us that we're infringing somebody's rights and a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay, why? Well, the world, the world does not see things as we do. And if we don't play by their rules, well, it will show its displeasure in a myriad of ways. So as God's army, we have to put the advance of the kingdom ahead of the received wisdom of our culture. We're not going to be thanked necessarily, and we might have a big fight on our hands. But this is not in itself sufficient reason to stop advancing. I worry sometimes, I'm speaking personally now, that the approval of people I know who are not following the Lord is maybe too important to me. What should be preeminent is whether I'm walking with the Lord and doing his will. And maybe I should just be a little more honest sometimes with myself and say, well, I'm going to upset them, then they're going to have to be upset because I know in my heart this is what God wants. That This is in God's word. This is the way to go. Um, maybe I spend too much time uh, concerned about upsetting people. Um, I don't know. But I do know that the world does not see things through God's eyes because it does not belong to God at this point. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a, with a belter uh, on this. Uh, I'm just going to open a huge can of worms, okay? And I'm going to let you uh, gaze into it, and then I'm going to put the lid back on. All right, uh, the lid is going back on. <sighs> we have to be careful that the world does not enter the church. We have to be careful that the attitudes and considerations of, of our culture um, don't become part of the way the church lives and moves and has its being. So, for example, the Word of God says very clearly that elders in the church, must be men. Okay, it's, it's inescapable. Okay, I can't get round it. I'm sorry. Not the, only does it say that elders should be men. Um, it actually gives instructions uh, for their wives as well. Okay. Now, here in Wales today, our culture is pretty much that anybody of any gender can be anything. And it would be held that our position is therefore in error. But if we give way on this... We are letting the world into the church. Okay? Now, lots of people struggle with that one. Okay? But we cannot give way, for it is the world. Now, 100 years ago, or 150 years ago, it will be considered by the culture prevailing that that was perfectly right. That was, that was right. And not only shouldn't women lead churches, they shouldn't be allowed in the clubs. You know, and you shouldn't educate them. They could get dangerous. Certainly don't give them the vote. Okay. It's culture that has changed. Okay. The word of God has stayed stead steady. It's stayed the same. So culture is going to change and we have to stay steady. Our worship 
absolutely must be centered upon Jesus. It must be consistent with his written word and inspired by his Holy Spirit. Nothing less than that is acceptable and anything else is of the world and not God. Anything else is, is, is called religion, isn't it? So thirdly, there's what the Bible calls the flesh. Uh, I was talking to Belinda about this. She reckons I've used this illustration before, but let's see who remembers it. Some years ago, I had a problem uh, with my car. It was quite some years ago. It was an Austin 1300 traveller called Prudence, uh, which dates it, dates me. Um, the car pulled to the left. Under braking, it, it pulled to the left severely. Uh, it wouldn't go in a straight line unaided. Uh, you needed to correct it. Unless I paid attention to this trait, well, there was a strong possibility that I would uh, run off the road, probably taking out an entire bus queue uh, before myself dying in a, a fiery conflagration and passing through the pearly gates backwards and on fire. Now we understand the grace that God has extended to us. We know we have been undeservedly forgiven. We experience God's love personally, corporately, and supernaturally. And yet, there is a part of us that is not centered on God, but remains self-centered and therefore hostile to God. This is the flesh. It's what the Bible calls the flesh. And in terms of the illustration I just gave you, we all pull to the left, folks. <laughs> Every one of us. <coughs> Paul wrote this in Galatians 5 from verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. So the solution is clear. We take to the field of battle walking by the spirit. What seems good to me needs to be measured by whether this is walking by the Spirit. Because it's, if it seems good to me and it, it fails that measure, then it should not be a course of action that I take. And if it passes that measure, well then it was probably inspired by the Spirit and God is telling me to do it. The question is whether we hold the measure up. So, if we take to the battle walking in the Spirit, well, we do it in his strength and not ours. We do it for our Saviour, not ourselves. And we do it together. So to summarise, our adversaries, they're the devil, the world, and the flesh. And folks, just be absolutely clear, they all fight dirty. So what's the objective of this army? Um, <clears throat> this is the first time I've ever preached where a large chunk of my sermon was, was shared in the notices. Thanks, Phil. <clears throat> uh, 
We're part of a worldwide family of churches together on a mission to establish the kingdom of God by restoring the church, making disciples, training leaders and planting churches. You will note that church or churches appears twice in the statement. And there is, for example, nothing in it that specifically mentions reaching the lost. Uh, The church is first mentioned in Matthew by Jesus himself as something that was in the future. And it becomes a reality in Acts and empowered at Pentecost. And we read in Acts 2 and verse 47 that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So as we've already established, the church is the army of God. It is the church that is the means by which the kingdom objectives are reached. In other words, God builds his kingdom through his church. And the growth and establishment of the church is an indication of the growth and establishment of the kingdom. And the growth and establishment of the kingdom will be indicated by the growth and establishment of the church. So what should the church, uh, the army, look like? Well, it must be a gospel preaching church that is loving righteousness, uh, sorry, righteous in its lifestyle, involved in world mission and reaching the unsaved in its community by both public and personal evangelistic activity. It must be a church where regular teaching and preaching of the Bible holds a primary role and where scripture's authority is final. It must be a church whose people are assured of the grace of God in their lives and are clear about the full New covenant benefits of being in Christ. It must be a church whose people are baptized in water and in the Holy Spirit and brought into a genuine life in the Spirit. It must be a church where God's presence is prized and where God is enthusiastically worshipped with genuine freedom for men and women to participate publicly in worship in the Holy Spirit, to use spiritual gifts and to participate in body ministry. Body ministry, praying for each other. It must be a church which is a loving community, meeting both publicly and from house to house, sharing and caring for each other's needs, both spiritual and material. It must be a church where biblical family life is highly valued where husband and wife embrace male servant leadership and joyful female submission, where godly parenting is taught and practiced and where the special value of singleness and its unique opportunities are affirmed. It must be a church led by male elders, one of whom is clearly understood to be gifted to be a lead elder, who are ordained by the Holy Spirit, recognized and confirmed through apostolic ministry. These men are to be helped in fulfilling their calling through the ongoing fellowship with translocal ministries, which means other churches, the wider part of, of New Frontiers. It must be a church where elders are honored as servant leaders, caring for the flock and providing opportun- appropriate spiritual discipline when necessary. It must be a church freed from complacency and endeavoring to grow in gospel impact, faith, prayer, generosity, action, and influence. 
It must be a church free from complacency and endeavoring to grow in gospel impact. Sorry, I've done that one. It must be a church whose individual members are equipped for their role of service within the church and community, including the release and training of those called into wider ministry. It must be a church which is fully involved in shared apostolic mission to extend the kingdom of God globally through the recovery of New Testament church life, making disciples, training leaders, and planting churches by all means, including wholehearted financial commitment, welcoming wider ministries, and regularly attending corporate gatherings. It must be a church which is serving and empowering the poor within its own ranks and beyond. It must be a church which wholeheartedly embraces the New Testament teaching of the one new man, demonstrating love and respect between the races, cultures, and sexes. It must be a church which is proving to be both salt and light in its location, impacting in its community. It must be a church that is committed to excellent relationships with other Christians and churches in its community. And it must be a church desiring and welcoming encouragement and correction from wider ministries in the fulfillment of all these objectives. When we talk about vision and values, um, you know, I come from a business background where kind of vision of values is something on a, on a plaque as you walk in. It's, it's there on the wall. A lot of time has gone into trying to understand what the vision values are. But once you've got the vision and values, it's almost like there's a tick in the box and then you can go on and do your real stuff. Mm. Okay. Vision and values are things to be lived. They're things to be done. Vision and value is not some theory and it's not some aspiration. It's who we are. And uh, what is happening on these Wednesdays in this period where we're all meeting together is all really linked into our vision and value. Let's all be clear who we are, okay? Let's all be clear who we are to advance together. Uh, now, if, if you personally have any problems with any of that, apart from remembering it, um, you know, see, see me or Phil. We're very happy to talk it through, all right? But come at us with an open Bible, please. I'm not interested in your opinion, and you should not be interested in mine. We should both be interested in what it says in the Word of God. Spurgeon again. I do like Spurgeon. I'm, I'm probably going to get worked up reading this. Is that all right? This is Spurgeon speaking of his own church to his own church. I have often prayed to God that I might not be the pastor of an army of invalids. I would be glad enough to comfort them and do my best to make this a hospital for them. But I want to be the captain of an army of soldiers and to turn this place into a barracks for them. I want you to go out every day from Monday till Saturday and on the Sabbath too, 
fighting for Christ, contending for the faith, seeking to gather in outcasts, looking after the poor and needy, helping the weak and feeble, comforting the disconsolate, and putting out all your strength in your master's cause. We have enough churches where they sleep. Oh, may God deliver us from having this place to be a huge cemetery. And make us to be a great house, a great city, from which shall go forth the hosts and armies of the Lord to do battle for him. May God send his Holy Spirit to abide amongst us in all his plenitude, and he shall have the glory. Vision and values. We read in Luke 7 the story of a centurion who sent a message to ask Jesus if he would heal his servant. Now, Jesus is en route uh, when he receives a second message. And we pick up the account uh, in verse 6 when Jesus is already on the way. Uh, He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, And my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is is a military man. uh, A man who understands what a chain of command is. And who applies it with respect to his interactions with Jesus. Now... (coughs) We may be a little uncomfortable about this, but the army of God requires discipline, just like any other army. Uh, uh, As you know, in the course of my job, I interview a lot of people. I recently interviewed a guy who had spent a long time in the British Army, and he had fought campaigns abroad uh, as part of it. He had shot people, and he had been shot at. His attitude towards discipline was very striking. And it was very different to all the others that I interviewed the same day. I interviewed him and found that unless pressed, um, this sort of self-discipline, it, it, it passed without comment. You had to sort of draw him out uh, on it. Because through the heat of battle, discipline had become part of him. He needed to uh, conduct himself in a certain way, or people got killed. Or he got killed. And it was so ingrained in him that he just lived a very disciplined life. And actually, those that didn't were a bit of a puzzle to him. So remember the verse we read in James. uh, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit. Uh, Submission to God. Uh, We have to submit to God, not just on the things we judge we should, but on everything. Um, Otherwise, the verse would read something like this. Uh, Submit yourself sometimes to God. Uh, Selectively resist the devil, and he will on those particular occasions flee from you, but otherwise stick around. We've got to submit the use of our time, our relationships, 
our marriages, our interactions with other people, our jobs and studies, where we live, the company we keep, our money, our pastimes, the films we watch, the internet sites we access, the Facebook pages we look at, the books we read, and every other aspect of how we live. Submission to God is the polar opposite of self-centeredness. Submission to God is without reservation or exception. God wants our all. You signed on to give him your all. We told him we would give him our all. And he is holding us to our promise. He will settle for nothing less. Which moves us to Hebrews 13 and verse 17. This is a humdinger. You don't hear this one from the pulpit very often because we're frightened of saying it, I think. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. And... uh, if you want to cross that in 1 Thessalonians 5, there is a real clear understanding that the army of God must be prepared to be led. Church leaders have a lot of guidance in the word of God about uh, not being domineering, caring for their flock, being gentle with you, uh, the centrality of love, in all of our relationships. Uh, indeed, it's, it's the service of the leaders to the church which must, must characterize the gateway and not the service of the church to the leaders. Okay, you know, you will not find your pastor flying in on a Learjet expecting everything to be done. Okay, because his uh, worldview is centered on serving All of that said, inescapably, the army of God must be prepared to be led. And let's face it, your leaders will not always get it right. Pause for ripple of sympathy. We won't, we won't always get it right. But folks, that's no excuse to refuse to be led. That's called rebellion, actually. And it was invented by the devil, Garden of Eden. And it's licensed for free use by anybody. Except them. Uh, When I was in industry, there was a form of industrial action called working without enthusiasm. So those doing so had taken the decision not so much to withdraw their involvement uh, as to limit it. They had not downed tools or, or left. You know, they weren't picketing the building. Uh, but they would do what they considered was acceptable. And until such time as they decided otherwise, um, it was basically a form of non-cooperation. Um, I think uh, uh, passive-aggressive probably is another way of putting it. But subtle though it is, in the context of the army of God, this constitutes rebellion. And we, we have to guard our hearts against it. For in my experience in a number of churches. It is the most common form to be found. So to Ephesians 6 and starting at verse 10. Finally, 
be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Very well-known scripture. The letter is addressed to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's addressed to a church as a whole. And its thrust is not to an individual, not to one soldier, but corporately to the church. It is a letter to the army. And in modern parlance, this passage constitutes standing instructions for the conduct and welfare of the army of God. Now, when Paul wrote these words, uh, he had an entirely different historical perspective from ours. The Romans had invaded and occupied two million square miles of territory stretching from the Rhine to Egypt and from Britain to Asia Minor. So when Paul lists a belt, a breastplate, a shield, a helmet and a sword, he's listing what he observed to be the basic equipment of the Roman army. And the Roman army, well, they were the winning side. And in passing, when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, they would know as he did that historically... You used to have to be a citizen to join the army, but that had changed. By the time of writing, no matter who you were, if you joined the army and served, you became a citizen. So those who wanted to be a citizen of the kingdom joined the army of the kingdom and fought for the kingdom. So, the belt of truth. It speaks to us of the integrity with which we must deal with God and with each other. Our yes must be our yes and our no, our no. We must be transparent towards one another and not keepers of secrets. And we must count withholding the truth, failure to tell the whole truth or deliberately misleading as less than integrity. And remember, please, without the belt of truth, there's nowhere to carry the sword of the word, and it's easily lost. The breastplate of righteousness, it tells us of lives that are right with God and are right with each other. My sin affects you. Your sin affects me. Personal sin is not a private matter. 
what is under your tent or mine impacts upon us all and can affect the battle. The breastplate of righteousness. Feet of readiness. Well, that is a church that is on the move together. Remember Spurgeon? Oh, may God deliver us from having this place to be a huge cemetery. We cannot be still and silent in this hurting world when we have the words of eternal life. We are continually on a mission. So let's march. Feet of readiness. Now, Shield of Faith talks about mutual protection and of what we believe together. This is a battle tactic of the Romans called the tortoise. And it illustrates why your faith is important to me and why mine is to you. We march together. We do not stand alone. Your faith protects me and my faith protects you. As we look out for one another, share life with each other, pray for one another, share God's word with each other and exercise our gifting together, we build faith. That's how it's done. And faith is for the mutual protection, encouragement and benefit of the church. Helmet of salvation. It tells of the protection of the mind. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.8 calls the helmet the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation is for the head. It covers our minds and intellect, our attitudes, the way we view things and how we reason. Hope covers the head. It is our helmet. Um, We read in Hebrews 6 and verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Uh, Now there are secular accounts of those who have suffered appalling physical deprivation They've been starved and beaten and tortured and it's just awful. And yet they have lived. And there are similar accounts of those who have suffered but less and have died because they lost hope. Our hope is firm and secure. The helmet of salvation. Sword of the Spirit. Well, it's the word of God. Uh, If case there's any doubt, it says so in the passage. Um, This is our preeminent offensive weapon. We can do damage with the sword of the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever looked at your Bible and thought, do you know, I could do some serious damage with this. Okay. Well, you can. We're not fighting a defensive war. We're not just grimly holding on. Okay? We're not just sort of holding on by our fingernails till Jesus comes again and then it will all be better. Okay? We have an offensive weapon against which nothing can stand. Our function is to do spectacular damage to the enemies of God. The devil himself cannot bear repeated blows. 
from the sword of the Spirit. And when in an army which is knowledgeable and disciplined in its use and we take to the field as one, then victory is absolutely certain. One thing other, we should bear in mind that the armour of God cannot by itself fight a battle. Uh, Someone needs to be wearing it. And that someone is fighting the battle. Um, Now there's a couple of other bits. Uh, He talks about praying in the spirit and praying for the Lord's people. Um, I think sometimes with this passage, perhaps because we know it so well, we, we, uh, we tend to just gloss, gloss over that. Okay. Um, prayer, folks. <laughs> yeah. Prayer. Praying in the Spirit. Prayer. Praying together at every opportunity. Praying alone at every opportunity. But when we get together as a church and we pray, we are on the march. We pray in the Spirit and we pray for the Lord's people. And again, one of the things that, that we, we so much want to get hold of uh, with that is, is, you know, let's march together in prayer every other Sunday evening for a couple of hours. Let's take to the field and do some damage. Okay. I don't want to be uh, a mighty warrior, okay? I want to be a part of a mighty army. We don't all have to be, you know, we don't have to get our lightsabers out and all of that sort of stuff. We just have to be together and stand in God's word. And then all of the things that have uh, caused us difficulty and have caused you difficulty, they will fall. They, they will just fall. Why? Well, the word of God says it. That's not me being overly optimistic or tremendously perky. It's just the word of God says it. Okay? So I'm very happy to say, well, that's what the word of God says. Because, of course, um, you're going to try it and you're going to find that it's true. And in terms of, in terms of an army marching together, um, folks, when we, when we call you to prayer, we, we really, truly do understand that sometimes, unavoidably, you can't make it. We, we, we do understand that. Um, but if we're praying together as an army, it should only be the unavoidable, unplanned that stops us being there. Okay? And I, I'm, I'm be, just being very sort of honest and open. Okay? We, we, this isn't an issue of uh, taking a register or counting heads. It's an issue of, come on now, guys. We've called you to prayer. We've shown you from the word of God that that call to prayer isn't a bright idea from your elders. It's in the word of God. We want to lead you into prayer. Are you going to be there? Okay. Not because, you know, I've bullied you. Not because um, this was a good idea we once had. It's in the word of God. Please, 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 will you walk what is in the word? 
And if you have the slightest problem with that, get your Bible out, come and see me. I promise I'll be kind and gentle. Okay? Uh, And I want you to know that I have a teachable heart. But you're going to need to show me from the word of God why you shouldn't go. So what we've shared this morning, it's been, um, uh, it's been about the church, the army of God, and it's been corporate, uh, really, um, rather than individual. And that's been deliberate because the army of God isn't any one individual. Uh, but when I was uh, preparing, um, I, I, I felt there were two, I might just be two people, but or maybe two groups of people, um, that that we would we would love to pray for. Um, I believe there's folk amongst us to say who just feel amongst us today who just feel that the 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 fight has been knocked out of them. Okay, um, they're just feeling battered and bruised, and 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 they just don't think they've got any fight left. And I think there are also folk here this morning who just feel pray, plain overwhelmed. I don't know if you're overwhelmed by something that's a coming, overwhelmed by a future plan. Um, but just, uh, you know, there's the whole, I can't cope. What am I going to do feeling? Uh, now, we'd, we'd just love to pray uh, with you. Um, what are we going to pray? Well, we're going to pray that you be filled with God's spirit. So I guess that would be a th- third category you just want to be filled with God's spirit, well, let's pray together. Okay. So how are we going to do this? Well, we could, um, we could have the walk of shame. Um, but I think what, what I'd like to do is, is, if we may, can we all just, just close our eyes, please? And, uh, uh, and let's just pray. Look, if, it, if, it, if it's you who've had the... Uh, the fight knocked out of you. C- can you just raise a hand or indicate in some way? Yeah? Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, and if it's you, um, please keep your hands up. If, if it's you who just are feeling plain overwhelmed, could you, you indicate, please? Okay. Right. And uh, if you just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay. Um, Phil, did you spot? It was, yeah. Could, could you ask um, uh, Rachel uh, as well? Okay. Well, we're going to do uh, uh, two things now. We're just going to pray with folk who've indicated what they want. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, can you just come to the front, please? And we will, we will get to you. Um, if it's more about, um, uh, you know, actually I'd love a cup of coffee. Well, that is ready and it is served. So you can go or you can stay and pray for people, whichever suits you. Okay? All right, brilliant. <laughs>